Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. So, um, in 2015, I've been to Pride twice, and the first time was in 2015, and that was um, from you know, my alcohol abuse, my anxiety pills abuse was just getting really out of hand. And um, I didn't know anything about recovery. I didn't know recovery really was even an option. Um, I didn't really understand the extent of my addiction, either my alcoholism at the time. And um, I was, I, I needed, I knew I needed something. <clears throat> and so I was told about Pride, and I just got on a plane, having no idea what was going on. Um, and they picked me up at the airport, and I remember just being completely terrified. I was, I had stayed sober from alcohol for, I think, like three weeks, and but I didn't understand that my clonopin addiction was also driving my addiction. I didn't make that connection. It was a prescribed, I wasn't abusing it. I was, but I was prescribed way too much. Um, and so when I got there and I was detoxing, the, the clonopin really was the difficult one. And it was, I was there for 28 days and they just knew what to do. They knew what medications I needed to kind of help with the recovery of the, especially the clonopin. And it was tough. It was really tough. It was scary. I didn't, I just felt so hopeless. And um, it, it didn't seem like there was a future mm-hmm. for me. And I, the only thing I could have faith in was that other people were, gonna, were telling me that they've been here, that they've done that, and they've gone through the same thing. And on the other side, they're good people, you know, they're shiny and new people really and so i just kept that faith that pride could do that for me and so i was there for 28 days i was introduced to the 12-step program um and it just like it just wasn't clicking you know like i felt like when i was there there was a lot of people who were in recovery from a meth addiction a lot of gay men and i tell myself that I'm not like that, like my issue isn't as bad. And so that kept me, I think, from really becoming vulnerable and opening up about what I was dealing with. Uh, And my ego just wouldn't let me be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to DC, stayed sober for a couple months. And then, it was, I mean, I was just white knuckling. I, I went to a couple of meetings, but I just didn't connect what it took to stay sober. And then I was, uh, and then I started drinking and then I was at a bathhouse and someone introduced me to meth and I was no longer, I no longer had a problem with alcohol. It immediately was meth. Mm. I 
it was media. And so from there, it was just a, a decline of everything in my life, whether my housing, my income, my job, my family. It took, I started smoking meth in March 2016, and by June of that same year, I was homeless, mm-hmm. no job. My family had written me off, and I, and so I was homeless in DC, and that was that was a scary time, and I had and I just stayed pretty much using, and I, I think the big tipping point when I started to use it intravenously, then, um, that's when I think my soul was taken. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, after some more time at another treatment center for 65 days where I really, at that point, I decided, okay, I have to listen and do what people tell me. And so I started doing meetings every day. And at this point, I was 65 days in a high-intensity treatment center in Maryland. And that is where my time at Pride was my introduction to the 12 steps and what recovery was. And then a year later, I was um, at this other treatment center and that I was able to kind of build on what I had learned at Pride and start to understand what it took. But it took a lot of failure too Mm -hmm. for me to understand how much commitment and how much how much, how much I needed to change everything the way I thought. Everything, the way I, I approached myself, approached life, you know, my relationships with anybody in my life. And that was scary. That was really tough. I look back and, you know, I'm, I'm four years sober, so I still, you know, I would consider that like medium long-term recovery. I, I still go to meetings. I still um, work with a sponsor. I still, I'm still committed. I'm still trying to strengthen my spiritual connection. That was a, um, that was a tough one. And I think for a lot of LGBT people that that can be a complex thing to kind of think about, I guess, you know, we've spent most of our lives being demonized by <laughs> A religious sect and to suddenly be told that that could save our lives i think that's complex but it's a god or higher power of our own understanding and that kind of takes away some of that anxiety i think yeah yeah so then i went back to pride in um november of 2017 and at this point i i just felt so defeated in that I have to do this right. I didn't know what I was doing, but there was something that I wasn't doing right for sure because I wasn't staying sober. And I stayed at Pride for 65 days. And, um, you know, that's a long time in a treatment center, but I needed it. I had, I had to be around other gay men, other gay men in um, recovery, try to start building complex relationships with people rather than just socially isolating or emotionally isolating. Mm -hmm. And Pride was a really great place to be able to do that, test out what it's like to live in a world where I'm involved with other people 
because I spent many, many years emotionally isolated, spiritually isolated. Just, I just had no, my social skills <laughs> needed some fine tuning mm -hmm. in my ability to connect with people. Um, but that, and then I moved into a sober house. And at the time, I think pride was like managing or they, there was some relationship and it was a house on Lindale. Yep. And um, I stayed there for six months. My intention was to go back to DC. I didn't know where Minneapolis was. I had to look it up on a map. Mm -hmm. I really did. And my intention was, okay, after treatment, I'm going back to DC. And then I'm, people would be like, you should stay here. And that sounded completely insane to me when I was in treatment. I was like, I am not staying here. Like, it, but once that thought was kind of placed in my mind and people I trusted told me that it would be okay, that this would be the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. I, I said, okay, fine, I'll stay. But I'm only staying in a sober house for like a month. And then I'm going back to DC. A month passes and I'm like, well, okay, things are going all right, I'm feeling better. Three months passes and at this point, I kind of thought, well, get do another three months. I'll just see how I feel. So I stayed in that house for six months. And that was a great, that was a great experience because it really taught me how to live with people, how to deal with getting a job and being like sober job hunting. Um, I learned a lot about myself, you know, like I had no idea what I was good at, no idea what I liked or cared about. Um, and that, you know, in, in early recovery, there was a lot of, it was bumpy. It was so bumpy. Mm. And I went to a meeting last night and when they asked about, um, if anybody here has like a year clean, raise your hand and just, and there was about 15 people in the meeting and it was just me and another guy who raised our hands and just kind of looking around the room. I just, my heart just goes out to people because you feel so hopeless. Like, does it really get better? Does it really? Like, maybe it got better for you, but it won't get better for me. Mm. And it just, I, so many kudos to people in early recovery. That first year, that first 18 months is the most difficult time of my life, really. Despite, Everything that I went through, it's so worth it though. There was those 18 months that at the beginning was really hard. I was training my brain how to like deal with my emotions. I had never done that before. And there was a lot of failure, but there was certainly a lot of success yeah. because I went to meetings, because I kept forcing myself to do scary things. And because I listen to the people that I could trust. That's the only reason that I'm sober today. And that's why, what I have to continue to do. I don't know how to do this on my own. During the pandemic, it was tough. It was tough, but I never, I never wanted to use, you know, because the joy that I've experienced as a sober person is just more than I, like, you can really describe, I guess. No. <laughs> no.
No, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you touch on something that's super common or what I hear a lot is this idea of like, well, you're kind of a unicorn if you can string together more than, you know, a year of sobriety and like that comparison factor of like, well, like, why can't I, you know, or like, even when it comes to using, it's like, why can't I be the one that can use, I guess, in moderation? You know, I think that that's a common insecurity that a lot of people have. Yeah, absolutely. I remember being at Pride and people would come in and share their stories and they would say they have like four years or three years. And I would just, I, it's almost like I could not believe what they were telling me. You know, like, how, did you really have a problem though? Like, I just thought maybe theirs wasn't that bad. Mm-hmm. Like if they can do that, they're probably, <laughs> you know, I don't know what I thought. I just didn't, it just did not compute that somebody who used as much in as long as I did could do what they're doing. But then they would tell their story and and it was my story Mm. hearing them. And those stories help. The stories really help. Yeah. You had touched on something. So that I thought was interesting, or you had said um, your second time coin and pride, you knew that you had to be with other gay men. Mm -hmm. Why, why was that? So I grew up in a pretty conservative, environment. It was on a ranch in Montana. And I have a loving family. I never doubted that. Um, But the narrative during the 80s and 90s was toxic for a young, sensitive, gay kid. Um, It was a secret that I had to hold on to. Um, some of the things that I heard were so hurtful that it w- I internalized them, you know, and I internalized them to a point where I created my own homophobia. And it kept me from building relationships into adulthood with other gay men. And I mean, by the time I was, you know, old enough to start creating these relationships, I was. I was drinking, you know, I was abusing pills when I could get them. But if anything, the alcohol kept me from making healthy, normal relationships. And I held on to that homophobia and I still hold on to parts of it today, I can feel. And that, you know, after I got the small moments of sobriety, I I could start to see where my life lacked in um, kind of building a better life, I guess. And it was me not being able to have a relationship with other gay men, especially. And I think that has kept me single essentially my whole life. I've never been in a long-term relationship. I'm 40 years old. And I think a part of that is because I'm still holding on to a lot of those thoughts and thought processes. And it's very important. It, it just intuitively felt like I needed to connect with gay men. Otherwise, I was going to be single my whole life, mm-hmm. you know, and I still have to work on that. During the pandemic, that took a huge backseat. And today, when we're coming back and you know, like I can feel my social anxiety. I can feel myself 
making excuses to be alone. Like I have to go work out or I have to, you know, whatever. I got to walk my dog or whatever. Like I have to put myself out there and it's a really hard thing to do. And that's why I go to LGBT meetings so I can do that and make connections and be reminded why it's so important and make myself vulnerable. And just, I think, you know, I am starting to learn how full my life is because I'm gay. Mm. And because I'm actually an alcoholic and an addict. Those two things have shown me how, I guess, courageous the LGBT community is, and especially the LGBT community in recovery. Like, those are some courageous, tough people, <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. I mean, the whole culture revolves around drinking and partying and festivals and different this and that. But it's, Circuits. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so to be able to be like, no, I'm actually me and I'm, I'm good here and I'm not going to change for you. I mean, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Especially considering, you know, a lot of this community has spent time in the closet and trying to fit in. And so finally getting accepted and then saying, actually, though, you, this is me. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty neat to be a part of, for my whole life, being gay was a huge inconvenience and, in a, in a sense, a curse. And I viewed myself through that lens my whole life. And there was no time when I was using, whether it was casually, I would get two weeks, I would like take a break for two weeks or whatever. Like two weeks is not enough to start to get to understand yourself. And um, my ability to connect with people just failed. And I could not get out of that negative narrative, that toxic narrative that I lived in and I perceived the world in. And I, and how I thought of myself, everybody else thought of me the same way. Hmm. And I still have a huge um, hill to climb with that. But it's like, it's not scary. It's not scary like it was before where I couldn't even approach it. I had to like stick a needle in my arm before I was going to approach that. So, but now today I don't have to do that. Hmm. It's just like... I look forward to building these relationships. It's scary and it's hard, but I go to these meetings and I can just feel my anxiety, but I know it's like good anxiety. You know, this is good stuff. Mm-hmm. Like doing stuff like this, you know, it helps my sobriety. No. So one thing I just wanted to touch on, this is totally off subject, but before we end, what interested me about your story was the fact that you were like prescribed this Klonopin and that was the hardest thing for you to detox off of when you initially um, came to Pride. And so I guess my kind of question, I think that's very common, you know, that we don't realize that our bodies are taking something that we, you know, aren't, aren't vibing with, like it was just too much for you. Is that an issue that you have today? you know, taking, taking meds now? Is there like some distrust within the, the medical field for you? So it's, I remember the first time I was introduced to any narcotic was in 2003, I think. I had injured my foot 
and my doctor prescribed me Percocets. And he was like, he kept that prescription going for as long as I wanted it. And I did not know that I was addicted. I just thought I needed it. Like I needed this to alleviate some of that pain. Mm. And it, after, I don't know, maybe three months refilling these, I can't even remember how many, what I was taking. I remember it was Percocets, but um, I realized, I think I'm addicted to this. And then that had kind of fed the beast, I guess you could say. And then from there, I would find ways to get narcotics from um, doctors. And I never felt like it was the wrong thing to do because it was a prescribed medication. But it was, I was not using them as prescribed. Um, and I've always struggled with medications. Even today, when I, there's been a couple times where doctors have like, I had a small procedure and the doctor was like, wrote or said, I'll, I'll write your prescription for a painkiller. And it was only like five pills or something. And it was, it took everything I had to say, no, that's okay. I don't need them. Like that did not come easy or naturally that I fought through that. And that was maybe two or three years ago. And, but, but when I was able to do that, boy, it just really helped my self-confidence, you know, like being able to turn something like that down, something that I considered the like gold, you know, it was a currency to me, but, um, yeah, the, the, the clonopin, it was so much clonopin. It was six milligrams a day. Doctors don't write that. That's like, they write clonopin for like half a milligram or one milligram, not that much. Mm. And I was taking six a day, never connecting that, that what it was doing to me. Mm. And um, it just shot my nervous system and it took a long time to recover from that. But um, I remember, so back in January, I had knee surgery and it was a pretty intense surgery where they actually took muscle from my quad and rebuilt my ACL. I mean, they re it was, it was a very painful experience. And so they did have me on a couple different strong narcotics. And prior to going into that, I made a plan with my sponsor and I made a plan with my mom and my mom actually flew here and stayed with me for five days. And after um, the surgery, my mom was administering it. My sponsor was kind of just checking in with me. And I realized maybe on day two, I was like, I am totally an addict and I need some, I am a hundred percent a drug addict. And my mom needs to have these and administer them on time and not do, not, you know, like it was, I would, I think one of the best gifts of sobriety has been my ability to be honest with myself and honest with people. That was not something that came natural. And so doing that now takes work, but gosh, it's come so easy. It's so much easier now to be honest. And it saved my life. I don't like if my, Mom did not come to stay with me. I would abuse those. I know I would have. It's just who I am. You know, once I start, I cannot stop on my own. I have to have support. I know that about myself today. 
And I think that's like one thing that is such a relief is that like, whether it's meth, alcohol, marijuana, pills, any narcotics, like I will use it until I physically cannot use it. If, if it's not in a healthy, controlled, supportive environment, I have to do that. And, and I'm so relieved to know that I don't have to keep testing things out and be like, well, maybe I could use like this, or maybe I could use this and just this much, or I can be sober and happy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't need that. Which is such a relief, you know? Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story and being here today. Sure. Yeah. Thank you guys. Thanks for your time, Will. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. We'll see you next time.